us the privilege to gather together every week for worship. It is certainly a privilege. Um, I'm so grateful to be here this week and to have gotten through the week and um, be here and be able to celebrate the word. Um, For those who don't know, Elliot had to have a procedure on this past Wednesday, and Chris and I were extremely nervous um, just because of certain circumstances that happened in our own family. So we had just been really anxious and nervous this past week, but God is good. And um, Elliot obviously came through very well, and we were able to celebrate our anniversary um, yesterday. So we are grateful to the Lord for his goodness. And so today, as we are coming to the close of Romans chapter 8, We are coming through what I said is probably the most popular passage in all of Romans. Next week, we'll get to the most controversial passage in all of Romans. But this week, we're closing up Romans chapter 8. And as you know, over the past two weeks, what we've been talking about is adoption. We've been talking about what adoption is. We've been talking about last week what the adoption process means for us as believers What happens to us when we are saved and redeemed and placed into this new family of faith? And then what happens to us eventually when we are delivered from this world and the bodies that we currently hold? And so today we're not really talking about adoption, except I do want to think about this one last little thing. When we think about the kind of person who would adopt a child, you tend to think of someone who has a lot of love to give. These are people who love, but they want to freely give love. Therefore, they adopt children who may not have that love. And so in that understanding, if we've talked about the past two weeks that we are adopted into this family of faith by God, then we do need to think of God as that adoptive parent who does, in fact, have a lot of love that he wants to give to his children. God is love. And the reason I want to harbor on that today is, yes, I think we all need to know all of the full dynamics of who God is. God can express his anger and his wrath, and he does, and we know that. But I do think sometimes that people who want to be sound when they preach or teach can only present God as angry. And God gets angry at sin, but God only gets angry at sin because of how much he loves us. And that shouldn't be lost on us. God loves us, not just in the way that we love one another, but God loves us much deeper than any of us can fathom in our minds. And we don't want to paint God as one sided. I think if you polled most people not even in this church, but in the world, everyone in some situation has experienced bad love, fake love, faulty love, love that's not grounded on truth. And so what most people need is they need to understand what true love actually is. And so when we are talking to people who don't know the Lord, yeah, he's angry at sin, but more than that, he loves them so much that he wants to redeem them. And so we don't want to short side God on his love. And so today, this is actually what Paul is speaking about. He is talking about God's love. The title of today's sermon is God's unending love. And that's what it is. His love is, in fact, unending. It is unshakable. It is irrevocable. 
This is what we're talking about today from Paul's perspective. But why do so many of us misunderstand God's love? I think sometimes when we try to understand God's love, we understand love as that thing that allows a person to do whatever they want to do. But that's not love. Or we think that God doesn't love us in a nurturing or caring way. And that all of his love is borderline abusive. So we have to start with our standard of love. Every single one of us in this room has an idea of what love is. And you've derived that understanding from some source, some relationship in your own life. And that's been whatever that standard is, that has been your standard for love, either good or bad. And so before we even get into this text, the reality is is that most of us have experienced bad love. And so when I get up here, it is almost arrogant of me to think that anybody will wrap their minds around inseparable love. Because to be honest, healthy love for a lot of us is far fetched, right? A lot of us have no understanding of how we could actually be loved the way that God says that he loves us. Even if some of us have been loved by our parents, we have also experienced love that was lost, separated. In other words, when most of us think about love, We are not looking to God as the standard, but we are looking horizontally. We are looking at people doomed to fail us. And so, quite honestly, our understanding of love has our gaze just a little bit too low. And so it's hard for us to understand and see God's true love because it just seems impossible that anyone could love Me like that, specifically me. For the unbeliever and the believer alike, we have been taught that God's love is radical. We have been taught that God's love is reckless. But it's not. God's love is the most rational love you will ever experience in your life. There's not a thing that's radical or reckless about it. He is a good, good father. And good fathers love their children. Simple. And that has to be, from now on, when we think about love, the framework. That has to be our new gaze. And so we don't look at failed love And think, well, this is what love must be, but we must look toward God's perfect love, his love for us, his love for Christ, and his love because of his love for his son now gives us an unbreakable bond with him. And so go with me if you will. We're in Romans chapter 8. We're in verse 31. We're reading all the way down to 37. So Paul picks up here from where we left last week. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to jump into the word, God, help us see that these words reign true. God, on any given day, they may feel impossible for us to believe. It may be a struggle for us to grasp that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. But God, that is the truth. That is the case. And so help us see that today, God. Help us find peace, joy, comfort and contentment in our relationship with you. Let us not be like the miserable Christians around the way. Let us find joy in the love that you have for us. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. And so Paul starts here by saying, what shall we say to these things? So we know he's picking up right where we left off last week. And so when he says these things, what exactly are these things that he's talking about? Well, it's all the things that he previously mentioned, the things that we saw mentioned over the last couple of weeks. These things are the adoption. These things are The suffering, the waiting, the redemption that awaits all of us. We are being reminded, yes, of suffering and that can be disheartening. And so what Paul wants us to do is not be discouraged, but rather encouraged. And so in order to do that, he gives us a practical reminder. And it's real simple, though we forget If God is for us, who can be against us? Y'all, it's just that simple. Now, if you don't understand how Paul writes, there is tone. There is definitely tone here. When Paul says who, he's not saying who because there is no who. There is a who. Y'all, there is an enemy. There is an adversary. Every single one of us, every day we leave out of our home, we go into the world, whatever we do, we come face to face with the reality that there is an enemy, an adversary that is awaiting us every single day. There is an adversary who has Brandon on his list. Bible says that adversary comes to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. Steal what? My joy. Kill what? My 
contentment destroy my hope in Christ? We come face to face with that every day. And so Paul's reminder here is if God is, in fact, for you, who rationally can be against you? But he's not dismantling the enemy. He doesn't even want you to think foolishly that there is no enemy. How do I know this? Because there are two places in scripture that he does identify an enemy. The first one is in 2 Corinthians 10 and 4. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In Ephesians 6 and 12, he goes even further. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. That's one enemy against the authorities. That's another one against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let's be clear, y'all. When Paul says who there is a who. There is an enemy. So why would he say who? I think it's like this. For example, it's like saying, who can look at the sun? Well, the answer is anybody can look at the sun. Anybody can look at it. But the question really is, who can look at the sun without it destroying their eyes? Well, that answer to that question is no one. And so what Paul is saying is for those who are for God, who can be against them? Anybody can be against them, but the reality is they ain't got a chance. They don't have a snowflake chance. They don't have a chance. Nothing successfully can come against those of us who believe. Let's not gloss over this, by the way. Because the knowledge that there is no valuable threat against us shapes how we live. The knowledge that there is no valuable threat against us shapes how we think. It shapes how we respond to life. I saw this video recently of this dog that was going to be euthanized because it had what they described as violent behaviors and mannerisms. And what this dog trainer who comes out and he takes the dog and within 10 minutes, the dog is completely calm and subdued. And he made this point. I thought it was good. And I thought it applied to us. He said that this dog was so used to being attacked that it attacked. It was so used to being hurt that it wanted to hurt. And so because it was so accustomed to having an enemy, everything to that dog was a fight. Everything was a fight. Even people who were there to help it, it was fighting with because they were so accustomed to fighting. It is similar with us. Some of us are so accustomed to fighting the enemy on our own that we forget that it's actually God who fights on our behalf. It is him who goes before us if he is for us. Who can be against us? It reminds me of the 23rd Psalm. Yes, even though we walk through the valley 
We're walking every single day through the valley. But the reminder is this. We are not walking through the valley of death. We are walking through the valley of the shadow of it. It ain't death. It's just a shadowy image. It may feel like death. It may feel like destruction. But the reality is it's just a shadow. It's just a glimpse. It's not the real thing, but even though we are in the shadow of death, we are only in the shadow of it because he is with us. The sheep, he says, can lie down in green pastures, not afraid of the enemy attacking them because the shepherd protects. So my first point today is. God's love brings us peace. God's love brings us peace. No, we don't have to go blind and pretend that there is no enemy, but we know that he isn't a real threat. Remember, everywhere that Jesus went, everything that Jesus did, he didn't do it just in the presence of his friends, but he did it in the presence of his enemies, the very people who would end up crucifying him, he is standing in their synagogues telling them the truth, not fearing his life. He had no fear because he knew that his father's will had timing, but in that timing, it had protection. Nothing could separate him from the will or the love of his father. And because he knew that, he could go places that other people were afraid of because he knew that the will of his father was to protect him until the day of his crucifixion. Likewise, we must go in and out and trust that if the Lord has called us to go anywhere, to be anywhere, to tell anyone the truth, no matter where it is, there is nothing, there is no one that can take me outside of God's will. Which means everything that happens to me is according to his plan for me. And that's why we learned last week, that's why all things work together. But what does Jesus say? The same one who is navigating and walking through and hanging out in places where his enemies are. What does he say to his disciples? He says, my peace. I'm actually leaving that with you. What do you think about this? The peace that Jesus had to go in and out of enemy territory, to be in wicked places, at wicked jobs, wicked cities, whatever the case may be. He said, but that peace that I've had. For those of you who believe you now have that. My peace I leave with you. Takes me back to Psalm. What kind of peace is this exactly? What does Psalm say? You prepare a table before me. Y'all, where's that table? In the presence 
of my enemies. Jesus was constantly in the presence of his enemy, yet he was completely unbothered. We have the same peace that we saw Jesus had. That's important. The reason that is important is because I see a lot of so-called Christians getting in fights on social media about non-essential issues, having disagreements over stuff that is irrelevant. Everybody wanted to complain about what was going on last month, but the only people I saw putting it up were the Christians. There is no reason for us as believers to go pick fights out. We live in an evil world. Every place we go is enemy territory. We just have to trust that wherever I go, if there is a fight, if there is a disagreement, if I'm in the presence of my enemies, well, I'm at the table. I'm just eating. We have the peace that Christ has given us. You lose your job, you lose a friend, you lose your reputation, doesn't matter. He goes before us. If it is you and God versus the entire world, the good news is this. You are in the majority. And sometimes we forget. Sometimes when you don't have the privilege of working in a Christian environment, it feels like it's just you there. But my encouragement to you is it's not just you there. Wherever you go, if you are a believer, it ain't just you. You have in every room you step in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working and operating on your behalf. And we forget that. But Paul charges us this. He charges us to remember something important. He says, remember what God gave up for us. God's sacrifice is a demonstration of how much he loves us. And sometimes we simply need to be reminded of that. I want you to get this image in your head. God gave up his only child to adopt other children. He gave up the child he had to invite us into his family. When thinking about that, that has to change Our anxiety, our worry, our concern about life. It's just like it's just like our kids. Every now and again, they'll come to us and like eat. Are you going to feed us today? And I'm like. When do we not feed y'all? We feed y'all every day, but I promise you, I feel like every single day there's this skepticism like this is going to be today. This is just going to be today. You just don't feed us. Elliot, daddy, will you play with me in 10 minutes? Three minutes later, you said you were going to play me. How do you forget? But I realize 
that we forget. And when our children forget, we remind them and then their peace is restored. Same way with us. We forget sometimes how God provides, how God loves and how God cares. And what we do, hopefully in the word, in fellowship with other believers, we get these little reminders when we get anxious. When we get nervous, when we get worried, maybe it's not going to work out. Maybe he didn't call me to do this. Maybe this isn't in his will. If I know him, he knows me. He goes before me. I don't have to worry about anything. He has promised in his word that he would take care of us. So we can chill out. We can calm down. We can relax and know that the Lord is taking care of us. Jesus said, he says, listen, it's not believers who worry about if they're going to eat. It's unbelievers. It's not believers who worry about if they're going to have shelter. It's unbelievers. It's not the believers who worry about whether or not they're going to have clothing. That's the unbeliever. God knows and God provides. And Paul's point is this. If he gave up his son for you, don't you think he can feed you? If he gave up his son to be killed, don't you know that he can clothe you? That he can provide shelter? It doesn't need to be extravagant. But don't you know that God provides? Even this, a step further. Don't you know that God in his grace and mercy not just provides your needs, but will even give you some of the desires of your heart? Think about it. Not only does God provide, but every single one of us has desires to do this or to to do that. And God, in his grace, you know what he does? He grants them. He grants them. That's beautiful. Of course he can, and of course he will. And so let's think about what Paul does with this next who he's bringing in again this courtroom theme that we've seen before and he talks about who can bring charges against God's elect well, what kind of charges are he talking about well all of the ones that we have are sins and so our second point is that God's love brings us freedom It is similar to what we saw previously with the no condemnation text. But here he asked, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is much like what we talked about, who can be against us. These are real charges. And so if this is the case where the accuser comes in and said, all right, Brandon lied, check. Brandon lusted, check. Been wrathful. Check, jealous, envious, check, 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 all of the checks. This is not that these charges aren't legitimate. And if he comes to God, the accuser that he is, and he says, did Brandon do all of these things? God would say, yes. And Satan would say, because he's done all of these sins, Therefore, that makes him guilty. 
And to that, God will respond, well, no, we dropped the charges. We dropped the charges. The charges, the what, they're gone. To the accuser, the who, they're gone. The son argued, the spirit acquitted, and the father upheld the ruling. We are innocent. It is not that we are innocent truly, but that we are treated as such. Why? Because of that reminder we get from Paul later on in Scripture. When he talks about all of these sins that unbelievers commit, he gives us this humble reminder. He says, and so were you, except you were washed. You were cleansed. You were delivered. You were set free. And because of that, those charges that Satan brings up against us, though they were real and present in our life, they are now illegitimate. God has expunged our record. But that's only for those who believe. That's only for what Paul describes as the elect. What about the charges for non-believers? Well, those charges are real. And they come with an everlasting sentencing. So if God says not guilty, no one can say any differently. And notice what it says. It was Jesus who died. It wasn't you. Brandon didn't die. It was Jesus who now sits next to the father who is interceding for us. The judge sits on the throne and for every accusation thrown our way, Jesus says as our only witness. But do you see these hands? Do you see these feet? Do you see this wound? There is nothing that you can bring up, Satan, that can undo this. It is the ultimate rhetorical question. Who can separate us from that love? Well, the same person who can be against us, the same person who can bring a charge, no one. Emphatically, if I know the Lord, then I am secure in the Lord. And that means that there is nothing internal. There is nothing going on with me. And then there is nothing external. What's outside of me that can pull me away from his love. What are some of those internal things that all of us struggle with? Well, every single one of us. We wake up sometimes and we doubt. We doubt that the Lord is taking care of us. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wake up and I just even doubt that I even know the Lord. Our own sins. Sometimes it can feel like those things are pulling us away from the love of God. What about what's external? Well, he has a list for those, and I want to focus on those really quickly on our third and last point. God's love brings us safely to himself. 
There's this old song. Well, maybe it's not old for everybody, but it's old for me. I'm not looking up. Y'all know it. It says, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. I don't know what the that was in that song, but I think if all of us took some truth serum, if we were all honest, we all have a limit on love. Now, it's not necessarily that we would stop loving anyone, but all of us would at some point have a limit and say, you know what? I love you, but I have to separate myself from you. People do it all the time. We take vows and we commit to a forever love. And then there is an infidelity or a financial struggle or just general changes. And someone decides, no, I will separate. I've even seen parents endure the struggle of adult children who are rebellious until they eventually have to kick that child out, even if for their own protection, separating themselves physically. And I'm not even saying it is unnecessary. I think you do have to do that at times. Or like Job, when he prospered and he had all of these friends, he said, everybody listen to me. And then he wasn't doing as well and people didn't want to be around him because you realize that when somebody is down bad, It takes a lot of love and it takes a lot of support when they don't have anything to give back to you. And the truth is, it is hard for most of us to love people who have nothing to give. People who we would say are a charity case. But what does God say? What does God say in regards to his love for us? In regards to his love for us, he says this. That even if we are at our worst, there is nothing that would stop him from loving us. Let's think about that. Can your troubles stop God from loving you? No. And he talks about some of those troubles. Famine? No. Why not? Where other people run from helping, from assisting, from providing, God actually desires it. See, most of us, when we have to be the primary giver for someone, we tend to not love them as much as when they could give something back to us. But it actually has the reverse effect on God. The more we desire him, the more we need to be provided for by him, the more we are drawn into God's love. It has a reverse effect. And so his second list, he says there is nothing physical in this present world and there is nothing spiritual in that world that will separate you from him. And that means even when you have one of those terrible days, we've all had them, 
when you didn't say some stuff, you know, you shouldn't say you've done some stuff, you know, you shouldn't have done. And at the end of the day, you feel like a mess, a wreck. And you think, how could God still love this mess? He says, perfect. I remember one day I was walking with Elliot. I think we were leaving Publix. And I have this, I didn't even realize, but it's really subconscious where when I hold the kid's hand, I wrap all my fingers around their wrist. And Elliot asked me one day, he was, he was like wiggling. He was like, why are you doing that? And I said, I didn't even realize I was doing it. But I said, I just want to make sure I never let go. And I told him, I said, that's just in case you try to pull away from me. I've got you wrapped so tightly that even if you try to get away, you can't. Y'all, that is exactly what God has done for us. There are times where we will experience the grief of our own sins. There are times where we might even be angry at how God is maneuvering. And we say, you know, I want out. I want to renege on that profession. I want out, God. And you know what? He has a so tightly gripped that even if I wanted to get out, I can't. We're in for the long haul. We are eternally secure in him, and it is impossible for him to let us go. We are secure in Christ. And, you know, it makes sense why this message is so hard for us. Because most people to experience the type of love that won't let you go, they've got to get through some abuse to experience it. When most of us experience the type of love that won't let us go anywhere, we immediately think of it being selfish self-serving. But God's love for us, y'all, is actually the complete opposite. Some of us have run away from this love because they misunderstood it. But there is no fear in this type of love. There is no fear that God is ever going to go back on his promise There is no fear that he's going to change his mind, that he's going to go a different route. And if we can get that message to people to let them know that there is a way that you can love and be loved without fear, where you can be completely vulnerable and still be loved. And I'm not even telling you it's going to come from church. I'm telling you, that type of love will only come from God. And as we attempt to love through him, we also attempt to love like him. And we'll do our best, but we are broken. We are still sinners who cannot love perfectly like God. And so in our desire to help other people see we must not point them to the the preacher or the the singers or 
the Sunday school teaches the only people, the only person that will love people the way they need to be loved is God. And that is where we must direct everyone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, just for this time together. God, we thank you just as you have encouraged us in how we have been instructed to love, that you have called us to an unending and unbreakable love. And God, for many of us, that is foreign. Most of us don't understand what that looks like. But God, you freely gave up your only son so that we could be in right relationship with you. Those of us who weren't your children, you have adopted us into right relationship, God, and we're grateful for that. Lord, this is also a reminder that there are many people who are searching and seeking for love and joy and contentment, and they don't realize that everything that they're trying to fill that void up with will, will fall short. It will fail because the void that they feel is God-sized. God, I pray that anyone who is in this room or watching or that we may come in contact with who does not know you, who has not experienced the depth of your love, who may even be running away from it in fear, God, that you would open their eyes, but you would also open their hearts and know that you are ready to receive them to freely give love, and they, they can receive your love without fear, without fear that they'll ever be disappointed. God, it is in your name that we do pray. If I said amen.